Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today has just published her first novel, having been on the other side of publishing for two decades. As vice president and executive editor at the publishing house Knopf, she's worked with renowned authors, including Emily St. John Mandel and Kevin Kwan. She's known for her remarkable ability to market and promote her writers. Her debut novel, Pineapple Street, written in just four months over the pandemic and published this March, rapidly became a New York Times bestseller. Based in New York City's Brooklyn Heights, it's a warm and witty examination of American high society. The Stocktons are an old-money American family who, despite their extraordinary wealth, have some very ordinary 21st century problems. Jenny Jackson, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me here. It's it's really lovely to talk to you, firstly, because I loved the book. I mean, I devoured it in practically one session. Thank you. Uh, but secondly, because your backstory is so interesting, because you've been on the other side of the process for so long and presumably know exactly what it is that sells. So I really wanted to start there. I mean, having been a publisher for so long, are there sort of buzzwords that you think are kind of capture the zeitgeist right now? I mean, so, for instance, when we look around, Succession's done incredibly well. And this book, though not like Succession, certainly is about a very, very wealthy family. There are internal rifts and, and so on. Is that one of the kind of, I don't know, touch points for today? Absolutely. I also think that escapism, joy, a way to feel like you are experiencing something outside your everyday. That's what readers really want right now. You know, if you look at the bestseller list, especially in um, in the U.S. right now, you don't see a lot of terribly sad, weighty novels selling like crazy right now. Mm-hmm. We see stories about friendship, about love. Rom-coms are enjoying a huge moment in the U.S. right now. You know, even the whole romance genre, which is not my genre exactly, has just taken off in, you know, the past few years because people have been looking for something to make themselves happy after a tough couple of years. Absolutely. I mean, does publishing go in cycles then? If rom-coms are having a moment right now, what was it pre-pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's been hilarious over 20 years to watch the ebb and flow. You know, I'm a fiction editor and there have been years where nonfiction has been king and people have been like, oh yeah, fiction, tough going, tough right now. And then eras where fiction is on top. Right now, I feel like we're living in sort of the heyday of the kind of fiction that I love most. First of all, fiction is absolutely on top in New York right now. I mean, the fiction bestseller list at the New York Times on top, those books are selling 50,000 copies a week, whereas on the nonfiction side, the number one title could be selling like 5,000 a week. Mm -hmm. It's just fiction is so big. Also, in the U.S. right now, there is a real appetite for stories by women about families. There's a seriousness to, quote unquote, women's fiction that was missing for years and years. You know, when I came up in the industry, it was all about the men. It was all about Jonathan Franzen and Jonathan Safran Foer and, you know, Jonathan Lethem. And, you know, women were fighting to be taken seriously. There were women were not being reviewed at the same rate that men were in the paper of record. Today, it's this thrilling moment where the New York Times and other major reviewers are taking writing by women as seriously as writing by men. And what a lucky time to Mm. be writing right now. Where did your love of literature start? Well, it started when I was a kid, and I give my dad a lot of credit because I think he understood that to make someone fall in love with reading, you need to kind of meet them where they are. And so I started out with 
Babysitter's Club and with, you know, novels about girls who like to ride horses. And I read so many Nancy Drew novels. And we laugh in my family at this story about, you know, I don't know if you remember, but there were the Nancy Drews that were written in the 1960s. They were genuinely scary in a way that the Nancy Drew series later was like a little less frightening. Mm -hmm. And I had a box of those yellow hardbacked Nancy Drew books. I brought them on a family camping trip. I stayed up all night scared to death reading in my tent. I wouldn't recommend that to many little (laughs) girls, but I had the reading bug. I was a goner. You know, it's a funny thing about Nancy Drew because me and my friend, who's also an editor, both absolutely loved Nancy Drew when we were little girls. And I think that the writing is not taking nearly seriously enough. But I think, firstly, as you say, much darker than imagined, but also responsible for turning so many people onto reading. Absolutely. And I think that there is a certain kind of little girl who grows up into a certain kind of woman who relishes in that story of a girl solving her own problems, a girl surprising everybody else with her ability, with her curiosity, with her instincts. Mm. I mean, I hope that that's that's kind of the dream. So tell me then about your journey. So here you are, you're reading Nancy Drew. You love reading. What happens next? Well, I just started getting fired from a series of jobs <laughs> because I was always caught reading at my desk. I had a job making sandwiches at a deli and I was always reading behind the counter. I had a job. It was the most boring job in the world where I was supposed to be sitting at the front desk at a biotech company. This was a summer job when I was, you know, 20 or so and nobody ever ever came in. And so I was just sitting alone, bored at this desk. So I'd be reading novels and I was reading, I remember I was reading Larry McMurtry. I was reading Lonesome Dove and all of the scientists who worked there would stop and chat and my boss would get very annoyed at me. Stop distracting everybody. I was just reading. So I would hide the book in my lap and get in terrible trouble. So finally, when I graduated from college, I said, you know, I think I should probably get a job where reading is encouraged. And so that led me to book publishing. Uh, And in fact, your degree was poetry. It was. I wrote a lot of poetry. I love poetry. And, you know, my my college poetry professor emailed me recently to both congratulate me on Pineapple Street and also let me know he's a little disappointed that I I (laughs) took the commercial route of writing fiction. (laughs) So you started off as as an assistant. You were the lowest of the low in publishing. Um, Tell us about that experience, because there were a lot of kind of, I don't know, intern exposés about how badly young women have been treated in publishing. Well, I was so lucky in that I had wonderful bosses, but the funny part of it is that when you're an assistant editor, you read what your bosses read. And so I was working for a man who mostly specialized in science, physics, and really, really dark thrillers. And as much as I say, like, you know, Nancy Drew was genuinely scary, like, these are a whole different level of, like, depraved. And so I was working on these books that weren't particularly my taste, but I think that is so valuable because I think to be a good book editor, you need to read so widely. And whenever people ask me advice about getting into the field, I always just say read outside your comfort zone Mm -hmm. because if you can be good at discerning the difference between excellent and mediocre in a number of genres, the world is yours. Mm. Tell us then about the nuts and bolts of your of your day job, because I think possibly the reading public are not aware enough of the role an editor has in, in crafting a book. I mean, you can have a, a wonderful book that really wasn't wonderful before the editor got involved. Yeah, I mean, it's 
It's amazing when a writer lets you in so early in the process and you get to help shape it. I have one writer who I've worked with for at least a dozen books now. And basically, when he's setting out to write, he comes up with an idea and he writes 30 pages and then he sends it to me and we talk. He says, what do you think? Is this the right idea? And, you know, there have been moments where I said, well, I don't think it's the right idea. I'm sorry. I think we should try again. Or I think it's an interesting idea, but why are you doing a male perspective rather than female? And, you know, he'll switch. I have to say that is a writer, that writer involves me more than other writers. You know, I also have the writers who want to deliver a whole first draft. And then we go in and we say, all right, well, the middle is a little baggy and the end doesn't satisfy and this character needs to be brought forward. So it's, I mean, Really, you're doing open heart surgery on these books. And when you have a great relationship between an editor and an author, it can feel like the most exciting intellectual connection on earth. Absolutely. And then, of course, there are some really established writers, and I won't mention any names, who've got to the point in their career where they feel they don't need to be edited. And boy, you can tell. (laughs) Oh, gosh, it's absolutely true. I mean, I have one writer who I worked with recently who, who does not take edits, and it was really very funny because my role on those books is honestly more like the role of what in film they call a continuity editor Mm -hmm. saying like well she was 26 on this page and I see she's 28 on this page you know and he wants to know what is wrong but he does not want you to say I didn't believe this character that's not what he's interested in you know and also I feel like when a writer has achieved a certain amount of success I'm happy to meet them where they are and give them what they need you know it's it's not even worth it trying to force someone to change mm. a book that they don't want to change it's his or her name on the cover yeah so I mean that editorial process changes depending on who you're working with oh completely I feel like you kind of have to be the universal blood donor and you give anyone <laughs> whatever it is they need that's that's extraordinary just staying with publishing for for a moment in terms of submissions now there's probably somebody else that that winnows those down for you. But how often are you exposed to to new manuscripts? Or are you just working with your own authors? Oh, picking up new manuscripts is the thrill of it. You know, I think I do at this point, after 20 years at the same company, I could fill my list without bringing in anyone new. But I feel like, you know, I'm out there with a metal detector looking for gold. And when you find it, it's the most exciting thing. Like, I had not worked with Gabrielle Zevin before. And when I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I fell so deeply in love. It was a thrill to bring her. She was previously with an independent publisher to bring her to Knopf, to introduce her to a new readership, to make a big bestseller. I mean, it's so much fun. But the volume is staggering. You know, editors read dozens and dozens of manuscripts a week. And of course, you're not reading all of everything. Mm. If something really doesn't sound like you, you read 50 pages, 30 pages. And and I know that's really hard for writers to hear. And it's hard as an editor because you know you're going to pass on big, important books. But on the other hand, if you're passing on it, you didn't get it. It's not for it's not for you. It wasn't the love match. And it's so important that there is that genuine connection between the publisher and the writer. Yeah. Now, here in Britain, they say that the average earning of a writer is £11,000 a year, which is really nothing. Advances have really taken a knock in the last few years, haven't they? They have. I mean, the vast, vast, vast majority of writers I work with also have a day job. It's very rare for a writer just to make money as a writer. And even those who've been writing for a long time 
usually also teach or they're involved at, you know, conferences or they find a different stream of income as well. Mm. What about the advent of sensitivity readers? I mean, that has changed things. We've seen uh, books such as the works of Roald Dahl, for instance, uh, being changed, or at least the idea that they will be changed has been mooted. Do you agree with that? You know, what's interesting is in the U.S., we've started calling them authenticity reads, and they've taken on some different components, you know. So, for example, for my book, we had a Korean-American reader read the book, and I was not expecting anybody to say, you can't have a Korean-American character, and, and she did not say that. But I did get some useful input from her when she said, hey, in your book, The relationship that the character has with her mother-in-law, you have her calling her by her first name. In Korean-American families, that's really uncommon. Oh, I didn't know that. So for me, it was more like wonderful to have authenticity Mm. input. And so I think... For us, we've sort of evolved from sensitivity more to just trying to get it right. Yeah, which, of course, is a a good thing. Now, this book, Pineapple Street, uh, is set amongst the uber-wealthy, and I wonder how much uh, experience you have of that. Are you a secret heiress? Oh, no, I'm just a spy. (laughs) (laughs) You had an unfortunate event at the Colony Club earlier in your career. I did, and I was wearing black jeans, not realizing that you're not allowed into the colony club wearing denim. And I thought, well, are black jeans really denim? You know what they are. (laughs) But, you know, I live in Brooklyn Heights where the book is set. And just by virtue of proximity, I have seen some really just hilarious, wealthy behavior. You know, I my children went to this lovely neighborhood preschool and I had the opportunity to go to their carnival not too long ago. And, you know, it's in the street and they have clowns and bouncy castles and everything. But the auction was hilarious. They were auctioning off a mini child-sized Tesla. They were auctioning (laughs) off a Botox party for women to have their friends over and have a fancy dermatologist come and give all the mummies Botox. They had these golf trips. I mean, it was amazing. And and of course, there are famous parents there. So there's sort of the the NBA player who is like playing, you know, the beanbag toss. And I mean, it is a trip there. It's just kind of all mixed in, you know, on Halloween, there's so many celebrity sightings in the neighborhood. And you see Amy Schumer out trick-or-treating with her kids or Paul Rudd handing out wine to the grown-ups who are trick-or-treating. So the neighborhood alone has given me such wonderful proximity to spy on. I was in Brooklyn Heights recently and I was really surprised by how much it had changed actually over the years. I mean, it really is a, a fantastic neighborhood. Tell us about the Fruit Streets, which is where this is set. Yeah, so there are three little streets called Pineapple, Orange and Cranberry and they're these sleepy, sleepy little streets. You know, there are no thoroughfares. There's really no reason to be in that part of Brooklyn Heights unless you live there or you're visiting someone there. And they're just the most leafy cobblestone streets. And then, you know, also the neighborhood is fascinating because the religious group, the Jehovah's Witnesses, lived in Brooklyn Heights for ages and they owned all of these huge buildings. And then they left the neighborhood and moved upstate, which meant that over the past 10 years, All of this astonishing real estate has gone up for sale. And so that's why these super wealthy hedge funders, celebrities, investment bankers have moved into the neighborhood because there's been this sudden influx of unbelievable housing stock in a very desirable neighborhood. Mm. Tell me about the Stockton family. 
Sure. So the Stockton family is as old money as you get in America, which means, you know, their family came over on the Mayflower. They can trace their history back to those early ancestors. Their names appear in the Social Register, which is a book in America of elite families. And the the mother of the Stockton family comes from a political family. They work in real estate. And so I would sort of describe them as a mix between the Kushners, you know, like Jared Kushner, who's married to Ivanka Trump, and maybe the Cuomo family. So, you know, former governor of New York. And they have a long history of wealth in their family. And their children have chosen to marry sort of outside of their cohort, the oldest by marrying a man who's Korean-American, but who does quite well for himself, the middle by marrying a woman from a lower middle class background, which turns out to be kind of difficult for everyone. And then the youngest... Although she's one of the most relatable, isn't she? She (laughs) is. There's a reason that I start with Sasha's perspective. I think that we need to give readers a view into this family from the outside to have it make any sense at all. Yeah. Uh, And then the, the third... And then the third, Georgiana, is finding her way. She's young and she falls in love for the first time and she falls in love with the wrong person and there's some heartbreak there. There is a lot of heartbreak but there are also lots of happy endings. It's really about entitlement and how members of this family start to realise that actually there's more to life. Yes, I wanted them all to have a learning curve and I think that we've seen a lot, you know, between Succession and White Lotus, we've seen a lot about how rich people are awful or how they're morally bankrupt. I thought it would be more interesting to write about people who want to be good but who have been blinded by their privilege and over the course of the novel open their eyes for the first time. And, you know, Georgiana, who's the youngest, is Generation Z, and they have seen Occupy Wall Street, and they have a really different attitude towards money. And so she changes the most over the course of the novel as, you know, the scales fall from her eyes and she realizes her privilege. The older members of the family have a harder time getting there, but, you know, there is a, there is an arc there. This is about people trying to be good and to learn. Mm. And you also managed to make them likable because some of them really aren't very sympathetic characters. How do you do that? Well, you know, it's funny because I love Georgiana and I have heard from people who say, oh, she's such a brat. Well, she is, but it's funny. And I felt like I, I can admire books that are written about unlikable, despicable people, but I personally wanted to write a joyful novel and I wanted to write about people who inherently are good and who love each other. And most of the family drama here derives from misunderstanding because it's a family that is bound by love. They just sometimes don't see eye to eye. And I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Just tell me about this whole kind of subplot of marrying into a family in which you feel you don't really belong. Well, you know, some of that came very naturally because... Over the pandemic, we spent a lot of time living with my in-laws, and then my husband spent a lot of time also living with my parents. We have two young children. And there is this funny thing where you can love your family by marriage. You can, you know, exchange birthday cards and Christmas presents and even, you know, deep secrets or whatever. But there are just those moments that come up time and again when you're living together where you say, oh, you wash your fruit with soap? That's weird. Or, you know, oh my gosh, does your dad know that he's like belting his pants like four inches higher than normal? You know, just these moments where you're like, 
that's not my family. My husband thinks that my family is so bizarre because at lunchtime, we all spread out the newspaper. We bring our books and we don't talk to each other. We just read and eat. And he's sitting there like, oh, my God, this is so rude. Is nobody going to say anything? But it's just that your family of origin is so just crucial to who you are. And and it's very hard to ever really break into someone else's family. It really is. And I, I love the little code that the two people that have married into the family have with each other going, not my family. And <laughs> I have to tell you a funny story about that. So, so yes, the two outlaws say NMF when something truly weird is happening. That is a code that my brother-in-law and I have had for ages when we're with our in-laws and they were being you know, weird, we would look at each other and whisper NMF. So I gave my sister-in-law an early copy of Pineapple Street. My sister-in-law, who is amazing, read it overnight, stayed up until four in the morning. And the next morning, I love it. I love it. And she said, and it was so funny. You put NMF in there. And I said, oh, yeah, you know about that? And she said, oh, yeah, Jay told me about NMF. I was mortified that she knew we'd been making fun of them. So here you are, you're this publisher, has this desire to write a novel been burning forever? Did you just jump at it when the pandemic came? No, it wasn't burning forever. I was so happy and I still am so happy. I love being an editor. I love the socialness of it. But during the pandemic, I missed that socialness so much. I missed lunches with authors and dinners with authors and book parties and readings. And that sort of sparkly bit of the job was gone. And so Writing this novel was me just trying to recreate that sparkly sense of fun for myself, and and it was so much fun. I have to say, I have so much empathy for my writers now because when the writing is going badly, it is miserable, miserable. When the writing is going well, it is just a high you want to chase over and over and over. You know, I would write something, and I would think it was funny, and I would be like to my husband calling, honey, listen to this. And I would read it out loud and he'd be like, yeah, okay, great, great, great. You know, but you just, you're dying to share it. And so I understand the impetus to publish in a totally different way. How interesting. So how was going through the editorial process for you? Well, it turns out I am as big a baby as any writer I've worked with because when my editors gave me the editorial letter, it was so long. It was 12 pages. And, you know, normal would be like four pages. It was a big, long letter with a lot of suggestions. And when I first got it, I read through it. I put it in a drawer and I just couldn't even look at it for two weeks because I was so afraid I was going to break my book. I was so afraid to go in there and mess it up. You know, I just thought, oh, I'm going to ruin what I've done. So it takes such kind of fortitude to say, no, no, I can take it apart. I can move things around. I can access that voice again. I can access those characters again. It was so much harder. And it feels so funny because I've been forcing other people to do this for 20 years. And doing it myself was so much harder than I expected. Did it teach you anything as an editor? Well, yes. The lesson mainly that it taught me is a really goofy one where my editors kindly put, you know, ha ha and I love this and really encouraging notes in the margins. I have always done that. I can't tell you how meaningful it is when you're revising and you're tearing things apart to just occasionally be reminded that what you're doing works and it's good, you know? So those little bits of encouragement just kind of meant the world to me. Mm, you didn't publish with your own company. No, I wouldn't let them submit to to the Knopf Doubleday group. I just felt like, first of all, what if they felt obligated to offer and they didn't want to? Or what if they felt like they couldn't tell me the things that needed to change? And then also, how could I sit in a marketing meeting and have them talk about budgets for my book with me sitting? I didn't want, 
I didn't want the awkwardness and I didn't want the favoritism. Mm, very, very difficult. But I mean, even publishing with, with someone else, you're a known name in the publishing industry in New York. Yes. And I am positive that I've received some degree of special treatment. Like, I'm absolutely positive about that and I appreciate it. But I also hope that by connecting with readers, it's earning its own keep as well. But it, I mean, truly, like, I do feel like I have been so lucky. Well, I mean, I don't think it's luck. I think it's a, I think it's a fabulous book. It absolutely deserves every bit of praise it's it's gotten. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of good reviews. And uh, I mean, how do you, the trepidation leading up to that must be extreme. Well, I've surprised myself because I have been a very good author. I I am doing the things we tell our authors to do. I never read. Amazon reviews. I never read Goodread reviews, but I do read all of the printed reviews because I revere book reviewers. I love book reviewers. Also, you know, especially in the U.S., we're dealing with a shrinking reviewer landscape. And so I'm just like so intensely grateful when people take the book seriously. And even if they have criticisms, I'm still fascinated to read it and I'm enjoying this part of the process, which I'm delighted and surprised by. (laughs) (laughs) Are people sort of picking apart the the sort of social fabric of it? So, for instance, you have this big generational gap between two of the siblings, which allows you to kind of examine that the whole Generation Z Z phenomena, if you like. Yeah. I mean, I think that's been fun for me to talk about because I am a quote-unquote geriatric millennial because I'm on the edge of Gen X and millennial. And through my job, actually, I've spent a ton of time with the people on the other end of Millennial Z, and they really do have an incredibly different outlook than people my age. Their view on marriage is totally different. I think they feel like the goal of getting married is like a shell game, like that is not worth it. Like why are why are we spending all this time and energy trying to find marriage when, you know, half of them break up anyway? Their view on class. They also are much more forthright about what they're worth. They're kind of unwilling to sort of put their heads down and put up with stuff just because the generation before them put up with it. So I admire Gen Z enormously, and I really liked writing a character that age. Mm. I want to say to people, take this book on holiday with you. The the kind of subtext of it is it's a great beach read. Is that insulting? Not at all. I was, I was just noticing the other day that on Instagram, I've seen a lot of people tagging Pineapple Street and saying, this was such an easy read. And part of me laughs because I'm like, well, I worked really hard on it. (laughs) But I love it because if I made it feel easy, then that means that you got what I was trying to do. You, You experienced the joy that I was trying to put into the page. And I think there is a certain kind of commercial writing that reads easy, but it does take some work to make something feel easy. So I am thrilled. Read this on the beach. Read it in the bath. Read it on the airplane. Like, please have fun and enjoy it. Absolutely. I read it in the park with my dog and we both really, really loved oh, I love it. <laughs> it's going to be made into a TV series. I'm excited. Fantastic stuff. Uh, thank you so much for talking to me, Jenny. It's oh, been a delight. Thank you for having me. What fun. Pineapple Street by Jenny Jackson is published by Hutchison Heinemann and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers thanks to the production team of Nora Hull and Lillian Fawcett. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listener.